Romans 8, 12 to 17, but it's probably better if you don't look at your Bibles because I'm using a different version um, because it's in English. Um, so it might be better to just listen. So it's Romans 8, 12 to 17. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For the Spirit joins with our spirit, for his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share the glory, we must also share his suffering. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you so much for, for what you shared this morning about how God sustains you. You know, when your job's the vicar, it's really, really encouraging to know that God's doing something. That was funny. It's really encouraging to know that God's doing something and doing something uh, for you and in you and in the people you come near. Um, I rang my brother this week and um, it's always sort of, for me, I love my brother. If you met him, you'd say, man, he is nothing like you. In fact, he's almost the heads to my tails. But if you heard him, we sound identical. Um, I suppose you could say um, my brother is, is me um, without Jesus, really. And, um, and he was uh, extolling the incompetence of the Victorian government because he lives in Victoria and uh, the hopelessness of the Premier. My brothers want to have an opinion about things. I love my brother. And, uh, and um, <clears throat> he's very glad, though, that, that uh, because he's in business that the government's going to pay him $70,000 to do nothing until September. He's thrilled about that. He thinks that's really good because that's going to enable him to buy another fishing boat. Now, I'm not, I'm not knocking or mocking my brother. I'm just saying, this is my brother. It's... Fine, isn't that what you do when you get 70 grand for nothing and you don't need the money? You go and buy a fishing boat. I mean, that's sensible. Now, you can think all sorts of things about that, but we're talking about the elemental spirit of the world here. And I respect that. That's, that's what we're talking about. 
And, um, and then he, he said, uh, but have you heard about Sue? I said, no, what's happened with Sue? I knew her tummy was a bit crook, a bit like yours, Kieran. She's been having that sort of stuff. He said, oh, she's had a complete breakdown. Now, I don't say that to tell you a good story. I tell you, say that in great grief. My sister-in-law, who we love, sort of has a spirit of fear about everything. You know, the car's going to break down, we won't have enough money, the boat's going to sink, you know, the kids are surely going to die if they get their licence. You know, it's just, that's just who she is. And you may be afflicted with a bit of that. I may be. You could call it enslaved to the elemental spirit of the world. And the thing that really did my head in was, here's my brother extolling the virtues of his new fishing boat and we didn't get to his wife till quite a bit later. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love her, but there's a disconnect because God is stuff and yet we can just be so massively disconnected and broken and wounded and really, really dying. Now, I just want to say this morning that there's this thing called the gospel, which is the good news of God, and we know that it's about the substitution of Jesus for us that brings us, allows us the way in. The gospel is such a rich thing. It's a million things. And when you started to speak about what sustains you, it started to sustain me. Listening to your story started to sustain me. And so in this strange time, I've just been thinking about, well, God, what sustains me? personally. So I just wanted to share you with you one bit of the gospel, just one bit of what God's work is that sustains me. And I'm not going to unpack Romans, although I am, and I'm not going to unpack Galatians, although I am. I'm just going to tell you a yarn that I made up about one thing that sustains me. And and I got a bit emotional about it in the first service, even though it's just a story I made up. So I hope you can just bear with me in that. The other thing I'm not going to do at the end is explain the story. I'm not going to interpret the story. You can do what you like with it. But I'm telling you, it's just so... This is one thing that's so important to me that sustains me. It's a story about Felix. The Roman cohort, that's a couple of centuries of soldiers, had cleaned the town and raised it to the ground with a lust for blood and destruction. Anyone who wasn't dangerous but was useful was hurled into a cart and driven away. Felix was torn from the arms of his mother he had no idea what happened to her or anyone else from that town. Felix looks like a slave and not a loved one. His demeanour, his size and his attitudes reflect it. He's edgy and his eyes dart this way and that way. But he's not alone. Slavery was normal in the first century. Absolutely normal. There were hundreds and thousands like Felix. 
in one of the Punic Wars, they took so many prisoners of slaves that they crashed the market for slaves. Over 250,000 new slaves in one event. Some people say up to a fifth of the whole Roman Empire were slaves. Their lot in life, as variable and as capricious, sort of malevolent, uncertain, as the pagan gods that people put their trust in, not because they were loved, but because they were afraid. Felix's master had died. As a child slave, his life had been hard. The master's son, who inherited the whole of his father's estate, no longer wanted Felix. He was small, he was odd, and he was undernourished. In fact, he didn't even bother to sell him. He just turned him out onto the streets to fend for himself, enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world in which he lived. Felix, you could say, had no say and no hope. You could say he was born into a life that never had a chance. You could say... Essentially, he was a slave to sin, the sin of the world, cast into a system not of his making. Some think that most of Rome or a quarter of Rome were slaves, but this was unquestioned. This was just normal. I mean, we could be here and a third of us could be slaves. We wouldn't necessarily look different we'd just have a different place in God's world through no fault of our own. A Hebrew Christian found Felix in the street and brought him into a gathering of the extended church in Rome, around about 40 people. Because he was a Gentile... Uh, Felix was a Gentile, this Hebrew Christian was uncomfortable about having him in his own home. That was a problem for the early church, working out that Jew-Gentile relationship. So he brought him to the wider church. The church's response was to look after him from that time onward. And the Hebrew Christian paid a small stipend to pay for Felix's food and board wherever he was staying. It wasn't out of pity, it was out of sincere generosity. Little, undernourished Felix was fiercely proud and independent. If you said, how old are you, Felix? His response would be, as old as you need to be. He was probably about 15, but he actually looked a lot older, but way smaller and thinner 
than he should have been. Felix didn't speak in sentences, but in abrupt statements. Felix do it. Felix fix that. Felix find out. Head down. Jaw set. Chin out. Felix's discovery of a place among the Christian people had given him a purpose, though. He'd become useful, despite his flint-like exterior. I think if you described him, it would have been more as a human doing than a human being. He carried, he helped, he fetched, he guarded, he protected, and he always ran. When he wasn't running, he was hiding, watching, vigilant, careful, Where's Felix? Here I am. And he'd pop up out of a dark corner from behind a sack of grain or from under a table. He did as if his life depended on it. Teamwork, not for Felix. I do it. I do it myself. As an abandoned slave, Felix was neither slave nor free. At any time, if the son of his previous master had turned up and discovered him, he could have done anything he liked with him. He could have dragged him back into service. He could have sold him or killed him. Did this explain a flint-like exterior with an inner sense of deep self-doubt? Felix lived in a limbo but he was valued and loved by a new community where he'd found safety and a purpose. Now, Felix got some work. He got a job working in a great Roman house, a house overseen by Titus Clolius Cordus. Titus was a senator of Rome, extremely important, lived in the top end of town. Yet inwardly, Titus harboured a deep sense of shame and regret. Some years before, Titus had purchased a slave, a young girl. He'd purchased her as company for his bereaved Wife. Then, when his wife, some years later, died in childbirth, in his grief, Titus abandoned the little girl that he treated sort of as a daughter, though she was always a slave. And his abandonment of her had haunted him for years. Felix's Christian household, his extended Christian friends, share their faith with Titus and the Spirit of God begins to do his magisterial work in Titus's life. Destructive regret is confronted by a new possibility of saving healing, restoring, but most important of all, the possibility of forgiveness. 
For Titus, though, faith would be costly. He's from a great house in an honour and shame culture. Roman families were expected to support the cult of the emperor, to honour him and him, him alone, worship, sacrificial feasts, and towing the party line were fundamental to what it meant to be a Roman. There was a system of connection through a web of favour and patronage. All the business was done this way, and people attached themselves to households in order that the status and the honour of the household would pass down to them and what they could give would be passed up. These things were completely at odds with this faith that he was discovering that declared one Lord, one faith, one baptism. To own Jesus would conflict and bring immeasurable shame on Titus, his business, his household, his name, his status. It was the absolute career-limiting move. And as Titus counted the cost of following Christ, the Christian community moved closer to him in support. Riff-raff that they were with but not a few wealthy women, as they were described in Acts. Titus invited the thawing and irrepressible Felix, who was now working for him, to move into his household because he saw potential in this young life, this boy becoming a man. And clearly the influence of the Christian community was changing Felix and Titus together bit by bit. Titus's mind is starting to think of the future and he appreciates Felix. He's got a quick mind and despite his edginess and bouts of defense, uh, defensiveness, Titus organises for Felix to be apprenticed as a scribe. He learns to read and to write and to copy documents and Felix has talent he prospers and succeeds and his journey with Christ in this community, his Christian community, has seen a, a, a rat-like desperation replaced by a quick mind that's capable and growing in confidence. Titus decides that he will go through the waters of baptism in the Tiber River in Rome. The denial of the honour and shame culture is costly. A whole group of people that have surrounded Titus his whole life desert him. And that gap takes time, a long time, for new bridges and new relationships to be restored. But in time they are. But he's gone from a, a first-rate household 
to a second-rate household. And now, as the old childless man, Titus, turns his mind to his legacy, his name, he thinks, who will be my heir? He confers with his closest Christian confidence. And then one day, in the courtyard of his grand villa, he sits and he asks his secretary, go and get Felix. Felix comes. He's happy at home in Titus's house by this time. Titus says to him, kneel before me, young man. Confused, but Felix obeys. Felix, from this day forth, you will be my son, my one and only son, my legal heir in all things. I adopt you this day into the Clolius Cordus family. From this day on, you will be known as Felix Clolius Cordus. Felix got up and left silently dumbfounded. If you'd followed him, you would have found him behind a sack in a corner in pools of tears. If you'd said, Felix, what's happening for you? He would have said, I never thought I'd be anyone's son. Every day, my old master would tell me I was rubbish and he could do anything he liked to me. Every morning, he'd say, perhaps this is the day. Yet, today, he is dead and I am a son. I have a name and I am the sole heir of all this. Everything that is Titus's is mine. Felix, slave, without hope and without a place in the world, is now Felix the son, the daughter, the heir of all things and co-heir, a brother no lower than Christ himself, the only son of the father, co-heir with Christ. Lord, today we thank you that each one of us was without hope in the world were it not for Jesus. We thank you that each 
one of us, every single one, was enslaved to the elemental spirit of the world. But today, each one of us is an heir to the kingdom of God who can call ourselves sons and daughters, Abba, Daddy, you are my father and I am your son and no one can take it away from you. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.